Welcome. This is the Short Fuse podcast, produced by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said that artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. We engage, we explore, we ask questions. In this episode of the Short Fuse podcast, I am in conversation with Kyle de Cunion. Kyle writes poems, makes performances, and is the executive director of the Poetry Project at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, a place where dance, poetry, social justice programs, and artists of all disciplines gather. What is poetry for? Who becomes a poet? And when? Poetry lifts us from our environment, and in Kyle's words, allows us to float out into the terrain of the unfamiliar, opening up again the place where our practices are deepest. Step out of the noise, find a quiet place, and think with us about the language of poetry. Kyle, it's lovely to be with you talking about poetry on this humid, gray morning. It's so good to be with you, Elizabeth. Thank you. So we can shift our minds. And neuroscientists have recognized that poetry activates specific areas of the brain. In fact, some of the same areas that help us to interpret our everyday reality through the rhymes and rhythms poets use in constructing poems. I thought, let's begin with a reading, a performance of one of your poems. Yeah, I love this frame. And so I thought I would read uh, my poem, Doesn't It All Go to Vinegar, Margaret? Doesn't it all go to vinegar, Margaret? The calisthenics, the records, the portioning of pleasure, the karmic deals we make with no one but ourselves, and the conviction that a secret can manifest a force of absolute and inevitable justice, or work can, the raft I call supposed to, the fractures, the splintered obligations whose notions of purpose lodge stupidly in the ball of my foot. So intractable, the pain becomes the given, the duty, I mean the point. So I water the plants. So I move the papers from this pile to that pile. I sever my habits from all of my devices. I sever my reliance upon food subsidized by corn and other sugar giants. I don't go there anymore, anywhere that requires an emission above a certain threshold. I cut what makes me sluggish or enacts a kind of harm, which I regret to say is kind of all there is, is harm. I regret to say, I say and say it all the same. And this accomplishes what? The admission, the down to zeroing, I have made my sutra speech, the follicles of behavior, the die, should I say, processed I imagine in an assembly line of adolescent goths, I have been at different intervals, the kiddo, all of me, piddling up inertia with a constant want machine. If harm is how I spend more than half my life, what does that mean for me democratically? Meaning is 
democratic, yes or no. Determined, I mean, by the most of us or the more of us, at least. Or if I am more than half my life asleep, does that become reality? Can it? Could we just say the real is governed by the majority or gerrymandered by the algorithms of our various lonelier and lonelier diets? Or shall we acknowledge that judgment by systems of half fail us as much as nomenclature by systems of two fail. I fall, I let the limbs go before the mind imposes fall. I fill myself with nothing where nothing was. And then I breathe again as I have since I was born. The most minimal thing I can do that qualifies as living. Nothing fixes everything, but there is no future without breathing or watering or falling. And so the three I do, I bind them as I do my enemy, my ancestor, my beloved, my other past beloveds, the stranger whose face I have carried since the morning, the first person who appears when I pose the question, who have I forgotten and forsaken and for whom am I grateful and who may need the courage I do not know how to send but do. I turn them and myself to the wild sorrel, the lupines in the north of the northern hemisphere, all turning toward the midnight sun in summer, a place without, a future without, clock, watch, phone, computer, job, rent, debt, property. And I asked my friend, the temporary monk, in your time here, what was time? It was need, she said, and aid. And did you feel more connected or less to the people you were here with? Relative to what, she said, beckoning adherence where before was only opposition, pulverizing the whole into particles like ants moving hopelessly in a line beneath a magnifying glass when it follows you this way, there is no distinguishing instrument from power from the one who wields it, the one cruel sun, the man and the burning that I am with you and you, we who everywhere make pestilence and green alike spiraling up through the floorboard out of structure into momentum, a house of going, of wind, of falling and rising, meeting, cresting, tangling, breathing, falling, breaking, circling, breathing, a house of mouths passing breath between them, us two mirrors which together make infinite the distance, the intensity of a very brief moment at the moment we decide to make it memory, watching shadows of leaves in the park while the harp goes and piano. I decide a particular hot lavender setting left across the avenues. I decide being read to, held, made, loved to, while upside down through the window's blue square, I watch an airplane. I decide to remember what is here and is unfathomable there multiple leaving or arriving. I decide I am object and subject at once. I decide, and this is the rationale, that speech constitutes itself a material. But a decision is not an object, nor is vow, nor promise. You cannot hear, touch, taste, give away, possess it. It can mean nothing. I love it anyway. It can do nothing. I do it anyway. Behind my house, another house. And this is everywhere the case, without a roof, through which trees grow, weeds, unidentifiable ferns, all as dead and thriving as any architecture of intention, unfulfillment, accident, abandon. With my one useless hand, I eat the plum, and with my other, I throw the pit into the other pit. Kyle, that is really beautiful. When did you write it? I think I wrote this poem two or three summers ago. 
So it's very nice that um, people listening can go back and re-listen to this. Where can they find it? Has it been published? Yes, this poem appears in a group of five poems that I had published in the Brooklyn Rail last summer. Thank you. What is poetry for? That was the opening question in a column on poetry by Eliza Gabbert in the New York Times Book Review recently. I think looking at a history of the poetry project at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, where you are the executive director, is, is kind of an entree point as it was founded in 1966, over 55 years ago. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about, about the project. Yeah, I love the history of the Poetry Project. So even before we were formally at St. Mark's in 1966, this neighborhood where we're situated has always been a place for poets and artists and performance makers and dancers and musicians who are, who've been passionately dedicated to some idea of the radical or the avant-garde. So starting in as early as the 20s, um, poets like W.H. Auden and Edna St. Vincent Millay and Khalil Gibran were parishioners at St. Mark's and were deeply involved in bringing all kinds of artistic life into the worship space of the church. At the same time, you had a bunch of poets who were gathering at different coffee shops and bars on 2nd Avenue in the Lower East Side. And the rector of the church was sort of aware of all of this artistic activity that was happening and offered a more ongoing space for the poets to present work. And so starting in 1966 with the invitation of the rector, uh, with some funding from the NEA, the poets were formally established at St. Mark's as an ongoing arts project. There were a number of different reading series that were presented. There were different workshops that started to be offered. And I think the combination of this reading series program and this workshop program formed a kind of micro community here that's flourished and evolved and changed in all kinds of different ways over the past 55 years. I think at the heart of the project and connected to this first question you're posing of what is poetry for, there's something that poetry does that changes the way we listen and recognize one another. It takes us out of the language of our daily experience and sort of forces us to, uh, to hear one another in new and unfamiliar ways and in ways that sort of challenge our conventional sense of sense. I've been at the Poetry Project now for about three years and I have so many kind of indelible memories of sitting in the parish hall or the sanctuary at St. Mark's, listening to a poet read and just feeling that electricity in the room of shared listening of people leaning really deeply into language that maybe uh, that maybe challenges them at first register, but also kind of strikes us in this way that we intuitively understand at some deeper level. 
you know, St. Mark's Church is it's such a humble building there, nestled in the corner of 10th Street and 2nd Avenue. And um, what it's, I, I believe, the second oldest church building in Manhattan. People listening, if you haven't been there, understand that the interior space is completely open. It's just a wonderful space. Right. Yeah. So the church did used to have pews in the main sanctuary worship space. When when the poets came into the church, there were still pews in there. What's really wonderful now about that space is because it's an open floor, um, the poetry project, along with a couple of other arts projects, share the church. And so one of our other artistic partners there is the dance organization Dance Space. And prior to the pandemic, when I would be at St. Mark's in our church office working on different poetry administration. It's a highly verbal job. I'm communicating with poets all day. Uh, And it was amazing to go out into the church and to see the dancers practicing on that huge open floor. And I think there's just such a special affinity and friendship between poetry and dance as really analogous forms. You know, I, I read a poet, a, a poet named Elizabeth Acevedo once described the power of poetry by saying, I think poetry is amazing because it is so easily carried in the body, which made me immediately think of dancing because, of course, a dancer will say that the dance is in their muscle memory. And and I just think this interconnection with dance and poetry is so special. Yes, absolutely. And dancers are some of my favorite writers um, because I think they have a really freed relationship to expression and to language. And I think that so much of the mechanics of poetry are so much of the rhythmic mechanics of poetry come first from the body. You know, we, in, especially in English language poetry, uh, I feel really attentive to different variations of meter. So if you listen to like a Shakespeare sonnet, you'll hear strong iambic pentameter, but you also might hear uh, uh, a trochee or an anapest or another unit of, of meter. And those units actually come from our heartbeat. You know, it, it comes first from the ways that language lives in our body before utterance. So I think there's, there's a deep, deep connection to the kind of mysterious ways the body works and is manifest in the language of poetry. I've talked about this with, in other conversations in this podcast about you know, the role of the arts in our lives. And I was talking with Rennie Harris, the dancer and choreographer, the other day, and he uh, has been drawing and he actually curated an exhibit of the drawing of, of drawings that dancers and choreographers have done. And I think it's partly our educational system where, you know, it's too bad that we all are don't have an opportunity to to learn to draw and write poetry from a very early age. Yeah. And I think I love you mentioning that because 
I identify primarily as a poet, but I feel so much interest and ardor in these other modes of expression. And part of what's really special about the Poetry Project is that there's all kinds of tentacular connection to these other forms. This is a, a place of contact. This is a place where poets and dancers and musicians and artists and critics and scholars encounter one another and so much kind of radiates out from those encounters. And I think we could all stand to be a little more connected to those fields where we're amateurs, because I think that that floating out into these terrains of the unfamiliar sort of open up again the places where our practice is deepest. The poet Bernadette Mayer, who is formerly a director of the Poetry Project, has said that she's often singing when she's composing poems because singing sort of, um, and she's not a trained singer by any means, but, but singing sort of takes her out of that craftsman mode that she's in when she's writing and lets something a little looser and more spontaneous happen. Music, it's, it's the reframing of the social narrative, you know, if you will. And who is a poet? Arthur Rimbaud summarized the poet by writing, a poet makes himself a visionary through a long, boundless, and systematized disorganization of the senses, all forms of love, of suffering, of madness. He searches himself. He exhausts himself within himself, all poisons, unspeakable torment, where he will need the greatest faith, a superhuman strength, where he becomes all men, the great invalid, the great criminal and the supreme scientist. Wow. I love, yes, I love especially that phrase, disorganized orientation of the self, disorganized orientation. I just key into disorganized orientation because I think that, I think that of the senses, yes, because I think that's so deeply what poetry does and is and comes from as i was saying earlier i think that we we live in different kinds of relationship to language that are so tethered to function and legibility and value and relevance and poetry sort of wipes all of that aside and asks what's underneath all of all of that sediment of daily language use what's underneath it and there's something kind of psychic and chaotic and possible that, um, that poetry activates. But I think it also comes from really attentive listening, to listening to the speech that asserts itself from oneself, um, listening to the speech of others that we encounter asking questions about the language that sort of floats in our, in our daily living and reconstituting it to rearrange us. I always listen carefully to the divine rants of the homeless because I feel that's coming, you know, from, from just a very deep place, um, un, you know, unedited, uncensored, it's just coming, you know, from, from within. Uh, when does one become a poet? 
the, the poet Neto Gorman, who was one of my dearest friends, wrote in his memoir, On the Other Side of Loneliness, it all began triumphantly one cold winter afternoon in 1944, as I sat at a table in the library in our house in Vermont. I opened a drawer, took out a piece of paper, and decided I would write a poem. I told myself, if what I wrote pleased me and was a poem, I would be a poet. I took up a pencil and wrote. So how did you become a poet, um, Kyle, and not an actor or a performance artist or a fiction writer? I think, well, before anything, I was a reader. I, I took literature seriously and passionately. And I remember I have a very specific memory of becoming a reader. I was uh, 12 or 13. I was really ill and in a hospital and away from school for several months. I was posted up in bed. All I did was read. And I remember, and mostly I was reading in a way that was kind of entertainment. Um, it was sort of just, it was almost like watching television until uh, I remember reading Carson McCullers' book, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And there's a moment in The Heart is a Lonely Hunter where this other 12-year-old character, kind of shy tomboy character, Mick, sneaks away from a birthday party and she's hiding in her neighbor's bushes and she overhears a Beethoven symphony for the first time. And there's a moment in the writing of this passage where McCullers is describing this character as feeling recognized for the first time by music and feeling that she recognizes music. And I felt reading this passage, wow, this is the first time I feel recognized. And it's by a work of literature. And I, I mean, since I, I just had such a strong kind of eureka moment. And since then, I've kind of connected it with, there's a really similar moment in Elizabeth Bishop's poem, In the Waiting Room, where she has a memory of being a child and waiting for her aunt, who's visiting a doctor, and she's flipping through magazines and she's she's just becoming increasingly conscious of an, a sense of self and she says something like um i am an i i am an i the letter i i am an elizabeth um so i felt like before before even thinking about becoming a writer or more specifically a poet i just found a way into literature as a as a place of serious recognition and self-witness. Um, and then from becoming a reader, you know, I, I was primarily a fiction reader first. And then I think the poet who really turned me to poetry was Gertrude Stein, um, who really, who will really take you out of your reading habits of, of conventional sense. Um, the, Gertrude Stein's work is almost entirely musical uh, and requires a kind of attention that's, that's not ordinarily syntactical or legible. And I remember my, in my first encounters with that work and in related kind of avant-garde work, I was just really drawn to the ways that poetry activated something in me without understanding. 
I could have an emotional response to the poem without requiring my surface level conscious understanding of it. Donald Hall interviewed T.S. Eliot for the Paris Review, and uh, he asked Eliot if he felt he was writing against something rather than from a model. And Eliot answered, I don't think good poetry can be produced in a kind of political attempt to overthrow some existing form. I think it just supersedes. People find a way in which they can say something. I can't say it that way. What way can I find that will do? One didn't really bother about the existing modes. And, and you know, it's as you've just been saying that poetry allows you a creativity with language that isn't necessarily found in fiction. Yeah, I think that, you know, we all have so many habits and obligations of language that we need to attend to during a day. So even in my poetry administrative job, most of my day is responding to emails and filling out grant applications and coordinating different aspects of production. Uh, And I'm sort of revitalized by poetry because it undoes those models of requirement. I like the the Eliot um, suggestion of a superseding as opposed to an active um, countering. I, I think that poetry out of necessity comes from some place that surprises us. We're, we are not in control of poetry. Poetry requires some kind of some kind of unbridling. Right. I, I don't even think of myself. I, I, I don't think that chisel the poem into being. I think I'm trying to undo all of my inclinations to control to let something else happen. Where do you find the time to write your poetry? Do you try to have a time in each day that's contemplative, that allows you to get away from the computer and, and, you know, the structure. I know a lot of people who are very disciplined, who do have a particular time of day. You know, they say that they wake up in the morning and they, and they have to write for the first hours of the morning or something like that. I'm disciplined about contemplation. So I do wake up in the morning and I meditate And before I have any kind of encounter with language that is ordinary, like reading the news or checking email, I I make sure that I have a dedicated hour of the day that's just reading. Um, But I don't have a very disciplined relationship to writing. I try to make sure that, that I structure moments of rest and deep attention through my day. And I find that those moments sort of program language into me in different ways, but I'm, I'm waiting for writing to assert itself whenever it wants to. I keep a notebook with me, and if I feel language happening, then I am entering it into my notebook. But again, I'm trying to do all I can to sort of get out of the... I'm trying to get out of discipline. 
<laughs> yes, I, I, I understand that. In the 1940s and 50s, there was the emergence of the beat poets who were experimental and took inspiration from jazz, the surrealists, metaphysical poets, um, haikus and poetry. And they were reflecting on the time. Here we are in a period that's beyond just political turmoil. You know, our planet is suffering. We have this ever mutating virus that's a continuing threat. We have political upheaval that's roiling governments and institutions across the globe. How, how, are, how are poets responding now? Wow, that's a huge and important question. I think that poets are like scientists of language. And I think poets are paying deep attention and bringing a high level of scrutiny to the ways that language borders our lives in the midst of all of this political turmoil and the upheaval of the virus. Um, and in addition to that, I would say our increasingly digital lives, we're subject to all sorts of architecture of language and information and government and opinion and often divisive discourse. And what poets are doing is sort of tracing the infrastructure of all of that and asking how is how is this composed out of language matter and what is the language matter doing and what is our relationship to it and where are the fault lines and how do we make something different i i think it's impossible to say that that there is any sort of dominating aesthetic movement um What's so remarkable about this time is, is that there's a flourishing of many different kinds of poetries that are doing many different kinds of things. The beat moment of the 50s and 60s was a really important moment in American poetry. And it was simultaneous with, with lots of other aesthetic moments and lineages that were happening at the same time. And I think that what's exciting about poetry right now is the vastness of it. It's difficult, if not impossible, to talk about poetry and performance today and not mention Amanda Gorman's performance, a poetry reading at President Joe Biden's inauguration in January. Her youth, her performance, her use of fashion, her proud demeanor and confidence seem to have generated not just interest in her work, but uh, po poetry in, in general. And I know for her, it's meant great financial success. Um, and poets have always struggled. Has this had an effect on, on poetry? Have you seen uh, you know, more interest? I think there's definitely been a renewal of interest in poetry. And I think that Amanda Gorman's performance was singular and special and very galvanizing. But I also think that there continue to be these moments where poetry enters the civic sphere and we remember how remarkable and important and charged it is. Um, you know, every, every few years, it seems like there 
there are these op-eds or uh, or articles kind of questioning the relevance of poetry. And then something like this performance happens that really reminds us, yes, there is a reason that we continue to have poems read at inaugurations. There's a reason that, um, that we have poems in the New York Times. There are there's a reason that we continue to return to poetry, even as it seems so unfathomable sometimes or inexplicable. I'm rereading Emily Wilson's new translation of the Odyssey right now. And I hadn't spent so much time with her introduction before, but something I love that I'm, I'm realizing as I spend time with this work is that it was also originally oratory it the 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 object that we're receiving as literature was originally a series of performance fragments that were kind of stitched together into text so there's there's always been this tradition of listening and reciting and remembering poems it's a social tradition and it's it's enduring, even as even as you say, there is a lot of financial uphill struggle for poetry, but it endures because we need it and because it does something that nothing else does. You know, when I when I was thinking about this, I I read one of your poems and I love the uh, I'll read a little bit. We endeavor to experience the language that waits underneath the obligations we feel for language to mean, to impress, to communicate, to assemble, to work. We support ourselves and one another in finding what barriers may exist for us around the liberation of our respective speech. I thought that was just beautiful, Kyle. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that poem. Yeah, thank you for reading that. Um, that poem is titled Incitements, and that's a sort of introductory clause in the poem, which is really a series of prompts, um, a series of prompts that I think are intended to just get us out of habit and again into some other kind of wilderness. Um, I think that is, it's, that's just again and again what I return to is um, I love poetry and I'm passionate about poetry because I feel like I have no idea what it is and what it can do. And I'm constantly reminded in other poetry that I'm reading and listening to that there are so many possibilities of language that are mysterious and bewildering and surprising to us. Underneath the obligations. I love, <laughs> I love that line. Um, you know, we haven't, we haven't talked about specific poets. There are so many and, and I, I, I wanted to, talk about kind of poetry in, in general, but how does one, you know, if one isn't involved specifically with poetry, how does one keep up? Kyle, what, what are some of the places besides, um, and in the episode notes for this podcast, I will include clearly links to the Poetry Project and all you have going on. I always look forward to getting your newsletter and I wish I could go to all your all your programs. But how does one keep up with with poetry? Well, 
it's amazing because I think there's so much more poetry that surrounds us than we're even conscious of. Um, but I think there are, you know, there are literary centers and venues like the Poetry Project in communities around, all around the U.S. and throughout the globe um, who are presenting different readings and publications. But, you know, there are also there are also sites like the Academy of American Poets has their Poem a Day program. They publish a different poem by a different poet 365 days a year. They have this beautiful guest curator program right now where they are bringing in a different poet every month to edit the series, which I think has really given it a gorgeous and complex breadth. But like I said, they're also, I'm, I'm really heartened to that the New York Times has resumed regular poetry publication. The Guardian is often publishing poems. Of course, there are places like the New Yorker and Poetry Magazine. I'm hopeful that there will be that there will continue to be even more opportunities for poetry to enter the public sphere. In Miami, there's this amazing organization, Oh Miami, that is dedicated to making sure that every person in Miami encounters poetry at some point through the year. And so what they do is they they have all of these kinds of creative interventions for presenting poetry in public places. They, they do huge poetry murals throughout the city. They had a project where they installed Bluetooth speakers into seashells on the beach that, that played sonic recordings of poetry being read. Um, and I'm all for it. I think that more of that should happen in every city. I think that, that there should be more poetry public art. So what are, can you share some of the highlights of the fall season at the Poetry Project? Sure. I'm really excited for a couple of different um, commission pieces that we have been working on over the past year. So uh, in partnership with Issue Project Room and with the organization Wendy's Subway and with the record label NNA, Northern Spy, uh, we will be presenting a performance by the composer and poet Jerome Ellis. And I think the title of that is The Clearing. Jerome is a Black composer and poet who also lives with disfluency, which is a particular kind of stutter. And Jerome's work is sort of exploring this relationship between blackness and disfluency and music as forces that disrupt our conventional sense of time it changes that all all of these all of these forces sort of um push us to experience time in new and different ways and so jerome will be performing a, a music and text piece at the project in the fall um, We've also got another commissioned piece, the, the title of which is Whale Fall, with the poets Mike Lala and Iris McLuhan. And that's a performance piece that's sort of situated in this context of marine life and whale echolocation. Um, and... Uh, and then the, some, some of the kind of 
topic tendrils of the piece are, are thinking about climate change and capitalism and the ways that climate change and capitalism sort of affect our language and the ways that our language sort of fights back against that. And then we also have a bunch of different um, pairs of readings that we're really excited for as well. Well, Kyle, this has been such a fascinating conversation. And I thought perhaps as we started this podcast or this conversation with a poem that perhaps you can leave us with one of your poems. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to close with this poem, Music for a Small Group of People. And it's a pretty sonic piece. And I'll just say that um, in addition to the reading of it, uh, the, the kind of graphic arrangement of it on the page is, um, is intended as a kind of score. It's, it's sort of inspired by the graphic arrangement that poets like Charles Olson, Charles Olson and John Cage have used. So this is music for a small group of people. I am afraid. Of what am I afraid of? I am afraid of what dove array, a dove of what? I am a dam I raise of what? I raise a day, a rut away, a right I am a day. I wait, I what? I feign a rate of fight. Of white arrayed, the state I sought was not what state the stakes were, wrought of fight. Today I fought the state and made of fight a light today. My might was not the drought of what? The night was sight, don't wait, don't fake my fate. I won't wait, I want my right to want, I want my right to want my right to want, I won't wait, wait. I want my, want my, want my, don't. My want was what was freed, I am afraid. What strays is what I am, I fear, I pay. The prayer is to the reed, a kite. The friend says, stay. I am afraid today. I stay. I say, say I am afraid of what I am. Afraid what I am is what I am, a prayer of what I am arrayed of, or if I am I a way of, I the rain is not what rain is of, 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 of afraid of, array of, ray is in the main way I am. What dot adore the weight of shame is what the ray might take, take and take. I take, I take, I take the shame I am and make a knot of rain I break. What I am is what afraid, no. Ashamed, a sham, no. A mass, no. The sand, the rain, no. The sake, no. The ways I, no, 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 no. I am no way, no how, not ever. Nor will I not know. Nor am I that, no. Am I waiting for, I may. I must, I will, I am. I take up all the ways I am. A sh of what I am, a sh, 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 a what, sh. What day is it, sh, 
Today I am sh. The day today is am and I and not. And what I am is not what I am afraid of today. Beautiful, Kyle. And you have a book coming out early next year? In September of next year. That's right. I have a book and the title of it is Incitements from that earlier poem you had mentioned. And that will be out with Ugly Duckling Press. Lovely. Well, thank you, Kyle. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Elizabeth. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through the short fuse podcast at gmail.com. You can support us through Patreon. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.